On Wednesday, November the 16th, 1864, Major General William Tecumseh Sherman initiated a campaign that, as one military publication would put it, was either one of the most brilliant or one of the most foolish things ever performed by a military leader. Only eight days after Abraham Lincoln was reelected, some 62,000 left behind a smoldering Atlanta and headed east for Savannah. As Sherman put it, my first object was to place my army in the very heart of Georgia. And indeed, he did just that and more. This is its story. Here, in part two, this is the story of Sherman's March to the Sea. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there to show that history is indeed a story. For his proposed march, Major General William T. Sherman had two wings, two corps in each. Major General Henry Slocum's northern or left wing, the Army of Georgia, headed due east out of Atlanta for Augusta. Major General Oliver Otis Howard's southern or right wing, the Army of the Tennessee, took a more southeasterly route toward Macon. Both locales were rail junctions and thus militarily important. After a week or two, the two wings were to converge on Milledgeville. But at the start, to reinforce deception, Sherman made use of Slocum and Howard's advance not only to deceive the enemy of his ultimate objective, but to create appropriate room for foraging, avoid crowding and delay, and provide enough space for thorough destruction, a swath of it through central Georgia, some 60 miles wide. To oppose this rolling juggernaut, Confederate militia, Georgia Home Guard, and cavalry under 28-year-old Major General Joseph Wheeler, the five foot five native of Augusta, Georgia, Wheeler weighed in at 120 pounds, rarely smiled, and always seemed to be in a hurry. Though absent of flair, the West Pointer had gained respect from both sides for his handling of the Confederate Army of Tennessee's mounted element. And indeed, as Sherman advanced, Wheeler used his 3,500 to throw up roadblocks at East Point, Rough and Ready, Jonesboro. Stockbridge and Lovejoy Station, but all to no avail. There were simply too many in blue, men who were part of a stripped-down, lean, select army. And young they were. Though spiced with veterans, quite a number were 18 or under, too young to even vote for Abraham Lincoln in the recently held election. As was their officers. Most of the Army's colonels were under 30, Captains and lieutenants were in their early 20s. Even the 6th Divisional and Corps commanders were relatively young, their average age, 31. The vast majority, Westerners who were descended from good English, Scotch, and Irish stock, although there were some Swedes and Germans. Two regiments even marched to band music and took their orders in German. 
and to round out this multi-quilted lot, there was even a Chippewa presence. They marched with the 3rd Wisconsin. Now, mind you, many of these Western men did not march with the same motivation as their Northeastern brethren, for there was deep-seated resentment toward blacks whom they believed helped to cause the war. As one soldier put it, I'd sooner shoot an abolitionist than a Johnny any day. Yet, one force, two wings and armies, four corps, 13 infantry divisions, 218 regiments, 52 from Ohio, 50 from Illinois, 27 from Indiana, and others from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, Missouri, and Kentucky. Amidst this collection, 33 regiments from the, as the Westerners thought them, the paper-collared East. Men from New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. There was even a regiment of white Alabama Unionists who held no slaves and despised the arrogance of the low country plantation owners. Each foot soldier was lightly equipped, the better to move quickly. Most carried a blanket encased in a rubber poncho, which was then slung over a shoulder. Add a haversack, a tin cup dangling at the waist, a musket and cartridge box with 40 rounds of ammunition. In front of Macon, the Confederates pulled together a motley crew, some 3,000 lightly trained Georgia militia, and a gaggle of Confederate brass who gathered to try to resist the inevitable. It was an embarrassment of men with encased stars on their collars, and even worse, politicians. There was Lieutenant General William J. Hardy, who had just arrived from Savannah to take overall command of, as he was fully aware, inadequate defenses. There was Georgia Governor Joseph Brown, former Governor Howell Cobb, former Confederate Secretary of State Robert Toombs, and Lieutenant General Richard Taylor, who was there to observe and file a report to be sent back to R.E. Lee and Richmond. Incredibly, before Macon, Sherman opted not to attack, which prompted many of the Confederate notables to believe they had saved the town. Yet, experienced officers like Hardy and Taylor knew that Sherman merely fainted toward Macon. They reasoned his real objective was either Augusta or Savannah. After threatening Macon, Howard's southern wing circled to the northeast. Slocum's wing approached the village of Covington as it fainted down the Georgia Railroad toward Augusta. As a Captain Oakey put it, we were expected to make 15 miles a day to corduroy the roads where necessary, to destroy such property as was designated by our corps commander, and to consume everything eatable by man or beast. Each morning, every regiment dispatched foraging parties, about 20 to 30 men under a mounted officer. In truth, most of the foragers were mounted as well. That gave maximum mobility and coverage. At day's end, parties were to return to a point where the main column was to be at sundown. Sherman's standing order? Forage liberally on the country and seize whatever is needed by the command. Trespassing in dwellings of inhabitants forbidden, and foragers were asked to discriminate between the rich who are usually hostile and the poor and industrious, usually neutral or friendly. In either case, a reasonable portion of a family's food was to be left behind. 
Sherman's men enthusiastically followed his orders to forage liberally, and more times than not, exceeded their orders. A party might swoop down on a farm or plantation, clean out the smokehouse, kill all the chickens and hogs, empty corn cribs and oat bins, seize flour and commandeer any culinary treasures like crocks of butter or honey. All confiscated was loaded on carts or wagons, while others rounded up livestock that was deemed essential. After collection, some of the more extreme parties simply slaughtered what was left. Though Sherman forbade it, trespassing into southern homes was, sadly, the routine. Homes were ransacked, drawers and cabinets rifled through or smashed. Gardens and yards were searched for signs of freshly turned earth, and if found, sites were quickly investigated. On occasion, slaves volunteered information to lead federal troops to buried goods and valuables. Envious neighbors would do likewise. A story of excess comes to mind. In Covington, a party from the 2nd Minnesota was ecstatic when a ramrod probing a freshly dug spot struck something hard. They dug down and uncovered a pine box and eagerly opened it, only to stagger back from the stench of a dead spaniel. One woman standing on a nearby porch shook her head and muttered, It looks like poor Curly will get no peace. That's the fourth time he's been dug up today. And to add to the feeling that the march was little more than a lark, foragers frequently snatched clothes and family heirlooms that were of no military value, like old War for Independence uniforms, tricorn hats, even wigs and dresses. Yes, despite the feeling that the march was little more than an armed picnic, there were moments of danger. Small details from Wheeler's cavalry descended on foraging parties, and to those in blue who were captured, well, they were summarily executed. During Sherman's march, there was at least 64 Union soldiers who were found hanged, shot in the head at close range, or with throats slit. Georgia women were usually frightened by the foragers, but there were some who were proudly defiant. One was a woman who, with her two small boys, stood on the porch of her shack and watched the Union procession. With two of her chickens draped over a Union soldier's shoulders, he asked, Don't you think we'll end the war soon now? Only to have the woman spit back, Our men will fight you as long as they live. And then pointing to her boys, These boys will fight you when they grow up. To a Quaker in the 10th Iowa, a woman standing on her mansion's porch said, My husband is a captain in the Confederate Army, and I'm proud of it. You can rob us. You can take everything we have. I can live on pine straw the rest of my days. You can kill us, but you can't conquer us. Not surprisingly, wealthier Georgians lost not only provisions and livestock, but they lost another form of personal property those enslaved. It was again at Covington that Sherman's army first experienced a wave of black refugees. To Sherman's troops, they cheered, cried, sang, and tagged along. To them, Sherman was the deliverer as promised in the Bible. In the Old Testament, a 19th century Moses leading his people to freedom. Curious, the red-headed Ohioan asked one elderly slave if he understood the war. 
and while nodding, he said he had been looking for the angel of the Lord since he was a child. They turned out in thousands. At every crossing, they lined the roads and poured into camps at night. And in doing so, for almost all these refugees, Sherman's army tried to feed them. As the first week of Sherman's march ended, Slocum's wing neared Georgia's panic-stricken then-state capital, Milledgeville. Riding with them, Sherman found himself on former Georgia Governor Howell Cobb's lush 6,000-acre plantation. Remembering him as a fire-breathing secessionist, Sherman remembered, I sent back word to General Davis to explain whose plantation it was and instructed him to spare nothing. Meanwhile, to the south, just east some 10 miles from Macon, one of the few military encounters in the trek from Atlanta to Savannah was taking shape. On the morning of Tuesday, November the 22nd, ragtag brigades of Georgia militia made a stand at Griswoldville. Directly in their path was a single federal brigade of some 1,513 men, which acted as a rear guard for the federal 15th Corps. Though outnumbered two to one, the Federal Brigade was armed with Spencer repeating rifles. Novice Confederate Brigadier General P.J. Phillips had been ordered not to bring on a fight, but either nervous or seeking glory, he ordered an attack. Recklessly, it came within 50 yards before it was shot to pieces, and the fight's aftermath revealed a heartbreaking sight. Illinois Captain Charles Wills described it. Old, gray-haired, and weakly-looking men and little boys, not over 15 years old, lay dead or writhing in pain. I hope we will never have to shoot at such men again. They knew nothing at all about fighting, and I think their officers knew as little. Three days earlier, as Sherman's force neared Milledgeville, one of the few women who did not flee town, Anna Maria Green, the daughter of the superintendent of the state asylum, which was in the state capitol, witnessed with disgust the Georgia state legislature in action. She wrote, Such a body of representatives made my cheeks glow with shame. They would not stand for the defense of their capital." She added, and she hoped for, as she put it, cool, wise legislation, but noted that legislators passed an act drafting all men in Georgia, except legislators and judges, appropriated $3,000 for a train to evacuate themselves, and then adjourned. Governor Joseph Brown made his way to the state penitentiary in Milledgeville and offered pardons to 126 convicts if they would join Cobb's militia. Only a few declined. Then Brown caught an eastbound train with a car full of his own baggage. On the 22nd, the same Tuesday as the fight at Griswoldville, the 107th New York raised its flag over Georgia's then state capital. Slocum's men marched right down the main thoroughfares between black faces who lined each side of the streets. That afternoon, inside the State House, young officers from the 3rd Wisconsin and 107th New York staged a rowdy mock legislative battle. They repealed Georgia's ordinance of secession, and then, with that done, the chamber was looted. Meanwhile, Sherman made his temporary headquarters in the governor's mansion. 
State Arsenal and its ammunition magazine were destroyed, but the Union occupation was brief. On Thursday, the 24th, Sherman and his left wing moved on to the southeast. Howard's right wing progressed a little to the north and on a parallel course that led straight to a savanna. Around this time, Sherman reduced the required day's march from 15 to 10 miles so that foragers had more time to gather and allow others to more thoroughly destroy railroad tracks, mills, cotton gins, and anything of military use to the Confederacy. The most difficult task? Railroad wrecking. Working in shifts, the men of one division pried up rails with crowbars. Ties were then gathered and piled crosswise to a height of some four feet with the rails placed on top. Fired, those rails became red hot and were twisted and made unusable. The end result, nicknamed, for what they resembled, Sherman's Neckties. About ten miles of rail were destroyed a day. All the while, with the exception of Wheeler's harassing cavalry, there was little, if any, concentrated resistance from the enemy. That being said, Confederate cavalry, home guard, and banded locals occasionally struck with extreme vengeance. Their particular targets, Federal stragglers and isolated foragers or bummers. To illustrate, after a 16-mile night march made by the 2nd Minnesota, one exhausted 14-year-old drummer fell out. He was never seen again. Very likely, the victim of Confederate counterterrorism. Another incident, the Confederate 9th Kentucky Cavalry fell upon Union foragers looting a plantation. Its major, J.P. Austin, led men into the wrecked house and trapped a Federal soldier who grabbed a young woman and attempted to use her as a shield. Austin reported that the frightened girl stiffened herself and said, Shoot through me and kill him. Finally surrounded, one pistol was leveled over the girl's shoulder, and at the soldier's head, the standoff ended suddenly, violently. Austin's mounted Kentuckians killed every forager in the party. On the 25th, another Confederate stand by elements of Wheeler's cavalry and another incident of angry reprisal. In a rearguard action at the little town of Sandersville, Wheeler's force drove out advance element of Sherman's command and settled in for the night. The instance of successful resistance motivated a mob, likely Confederate troops and locals, to push aside an intimidated guard, grab Federal prisoners, and herd them into a nearby open field. There, they were shot down. Soon after, on the 26th, Federal numbers drove into Sandersville, pushed out Wheeler's men, and the steamroller rolled on. Despite the acts of violence, both action and reaction, sometimes, sometimes there were acts of humanity. Despite the fact that the town of Sandersville was the scene of Confederate vengeance, it also served as a stage for an individual's compassion. While federal soldiers torched stores in the courthouse, while smoke drifted through the village, and with the air fouled by the stench of nearby federal camps, a weary widow watched it all from a nearby porch and shifted a wailing baby she held in her arms. Hearing the cries of the child, a Union soldier who was on guard asked, 
Why does he cry so? Responding, she said, he's hungry. For two days I've had nothing to eat, and I can't nurse him. With pools of tears welling in his eyes, he promised, I'll be relieved soon, and when I draw rations this evening, I'll bring them to you. Later, honoring his word, the Union soldier returned with flour and coffee, and with pans borrowed from the federal camp, soon there were biscuits and hot coffee, not only for her, but for her invited good Samaritan. Those stories were heartwarming, but more times than not, the norm was devastation, wanton destruction. While these acts on opposite ends of the spectrum played themselves out, Sherman kept a watchful eye on any concentrations of possible organized Confederate resistance. As he correctly surmised, William Hardy was content to gather Confederate forces and await the blue wave at the city of Savannah. And in Augusta, Braxton Bragg did what he did best. Nothing. He waited for some 10,000 reinforcements from the Carolinas and sat tight. And Sherman knew he would. And so the march continued. And for the first time, over new terrain, low-lying and marshy, men in blue were intrigued to see exotic Spanish moss for the first time. But there was a downside. Gone were the rich fields and large plantations that filled foragers' wagons. By now, in ten marching days, Sherman's men had covered nearly half the distance to Savannah with little, if any, significantly scaled organized resistance. That changed the night of Saturday, November the 26th, when Wheeler's roving troopers surprised Judson Kilpatrick and fell upon his cavalry near Augusta. Over the next several days, the two forces clashed in what was collectively known as the Battle of Waynesboro. Eventually, the Confederate annoyance was driven away, therefore allowing an embarrassed Kilpatrick to catch up with Slocum's 14th and 20th Corps. The next sizable town, Millen, a railroad junction on the far side of the Ogeechee River, there was a little Union POW camp, Camp Lawton, there, many survivors of the, by now, abandoned prison at Andersonville. Slocum and Kilpatrick wanted to free the some 8,600 men held in Millen, but as Kilpatrick's advance party rode in, they watched emaciated prisoners being herded into boxcars on the opposite shore of the river. When the main body finally rode into the evacuated prison site, they found a sign that read, 650 buried here. In short order, men of the 14th and 20th Corps burned the stockade and a good part of Millen as well. It was instances like this that contributed to the increasing violence and cruelty that marked the second half of the march to the sea. Foraging parties were meaner, rougher, and worse. Far too many foragers became essentially unsanctioned renegades, looters, and bummers. At times, they were joined by Confederate deserters, and on occasion, even by Wheeler's men. They stole horses. They sought out whiskey and gold. Incensed Union Brigadier General Jefferson C. Davis threatened to execute looters, men he believed who outraged and embarrassed his decent soldiers of the 14th Corps. Despite the threat, Davis shot no one. 
pious O.O. Howard also threatened to shoot looters. But when push came to shove, he also backed down. Major General Peter Osterhaus, commander of the 15th Corps, did fine a month's pay if caught, and the 17th Corps commander, Major General Frank Blair Jr., tried to punish similarly. Sherman insisted that he wanted foraging, not pillaging, stating, I don't war on women and children. But the issue, as it is regardless of century in conflict, proved to be who would actually enforce the measures. Discipline was not Sherman's only problem. What began as a joyous liberation of slaves evolved into a logistical nightmare. By now, some 25,000 black refugees trailed the marching columns. Sherman urged them to stay at home, wait for the war to end. But nothing he said reduced the number. And as the army moved closer to Savannah, through country that grew increasingly swampy, there was tragedy. On Thursday, December the 8th, Davis's 14th Corps brought up the rear of Slocum's left wing. As they approached Ebenezer Creek, a brown stream over 100 feet wide, Davis hurried the 58th Indiana forward to throw a pontoon bridge. With armed guards holding back some 650 blacks who tailed the column, many of them women and children, Davis marched his corps over. When the last unit crossed, guards got on the bridge and, acting on Davis's orders, cut loose the pontoon bridge. Pulling themselves to the far bank, they abandoned the black refugees. When they realized they had been left behind, terror ensued. Adding to the horror, some of Wheeler's Confederates arrived on the scene and horror morphed into unadulterated delirium. Some cried, some prayed, some ran wildly up and down the bank, some plunged into the water and tried to swim across. For many who tried, and that included some women clutching babies, a watery death. Davis's engineers, horrified at the unfolding disaster, hurled wood into the water, felled trees hoping those in the water might latch upon them. Meanwhile, a company of Wheeler's mounted men began to herd the abandoned to the rear, where over the course of the next few days, most were returned to their owners from whom they had escaped. While this horrific scene played itself out, Davis and the 14th Corps marched onward to the east. Few in that column seemed to care. Few even mentioned the incident in their letters or diaries. True, many were unaware. However, enough did know that harsh criticism was hurled upon Davis and Sherman. Major James Connolly was one who blasted Davis. He wrote, The idea of five or six hundred black women, children, and old men being returned to slavery by such an infernal copperhead as Jeff C. Davis was entirely too much. I told his staff officers what I thought of such an inhuman, barbarous proceeding. The disaster there at Ebenezer Creek took place only 20 miles from Savannah. Despite the incident, the 62,000 who marched out of Atlanta were confident amazingly healthy, including what few wounded they had. Only 2% were deemed unfit for duty in the four-week-long trek. 
Still ahead, though, sandy soil, rivers, swamp, and Confederate works defended by untold numbers. Usually, when a small Confederate force or earthwork presented itself, the lead brigade sent a regiment to flank each side of the Confederate work while the rest of the column moved head-on. There were other obstacles, and they were deemed barbaric and dastardly. Today, no one blinks about their use. But then, they were called torpedoes. We know them today as landmines, and they were there in large part thanks to the creative and destructive genius of native North Carolinian Brigadier General Gabriel J. Rains, who in fact made use of an earlier design by Samuel J. Colt of Connecticut. It was Rains' torpedoes that inflicted most of the Union casualties in their approach to Savannah. Indeed, Sherman, firsthand, saw the destruction wrought by these weapons. When riding with the advance of the 17th Corps, he saw a dead horse in the road and several wounded men. The sight appalled and enraged him. Soon thereafter, Corps Commander Frank Blair pushed Confederate prisoners to the front and ordered them to clear the road. They, in turn, turned to Sherman for mercy. You can't send us out there to get blown up in the name of humanity, General. To that, Sherman growled. Your people put them there to assassinate my men. And then, pointing to a horribly wounded trooper, asked, Is that humanity? The same Confederate responded, What in us, General? We don't know where the things are buried. Unfazed, Sherman shot back, I don't care a damn if you're blown up. I'll not have my own men killed like this. As Sherman's force began to near its objective, they found William Joseph Hardy's Confederate command, which numbered anywhere from ten to 18,000 men. His defensive line defended five causeways that ran into Savannah, causeways which stretched across marshes, canals, and flooded rice fields. They ran from the Savannah River on Sherman's left to the Ogeechee on his right and dotted along the Confederate line earthworks and rifle pits, all protected by sharpened stakes. Hardy's position was strong enough that Sherman, on Monday, December the 12th, placed his force in an irregular crescent and began siege operations. Four miles away, the prize, the city of Savannah, which had been bottled up since April of 1862 with the capture of Fort Pulaski. As Sherman deployed his army, keep in mind that no one had heard from him since he left Atlanta. And not only President Lincoln, but an entire nation was filled with anxiety. In Washington City, Sherman's brother, Senator John Sherman, approached and asked the 16th president if he had heard anything. In his folksy way, the president answered, Oh, no. And then he added, I know the hole he went in at, but I can't tell you what hole he'll come out. Inside the other hole... Savannah, Hardy rallied his meager force, strengthened his defenses, particularly those to the north, where a rail line offered his troops their sole avenue of escape to Charleston, South Carolina. By now, there was another Confederate general on the scene, one that was a full general, P.G.T. Beauregard, in charge of the entire military department, was in the city. And unlike John C. Pemberton at Vicksburg, 
Beauregard did not want Savannah and Hardy's force to fall. If one or the other must, Beauregard wanted Hardy and his men to escape, even if it meant the loss of the city. Sherman had a priority, too. He wanted to link up with the United States Navy, and that could best occur up the Ogeechee River, which was on his right. The challenge was the Confederate fort that sat at the river's mouth, Fort McAllister. Naval vessels had approached it, but were kept at arm's length by its big guns. Sherman wanted it. His cavalry chief, Kilpatrick, reported it was too tough for his force to take it. But O.O. Howard believed the fort vulnerable to infantry attack. And so it would come to pass that on Tuesday, December the 13th, at about 4 p.m., Brigadier General William B. Hazen's division, the same unit Sherman commanded back at Shiloh and Vicksburg, attacked. Howard was right. By 4.30, Fort McAllister fell. 24 heavy guns were captured along with 40 tons of ammunition and a month's supply of food for the garrison. Savannah was in trouble. Later that same night, Sherman boarded a vessel at anchor nearby and forwarded a message to Secretary of War Stanton in Washington City. It read, I regard Savannah as already gained. The next day, he found himself on the flagship of Admiral John A. Dahlgren, commander of the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. Responding to cheers from sailors who, hanging from the yards, welcomed him, he boasted, I've got Savannah. It's in my grip. On the 15th of Thursday, and the same day, Major General George Thomas began the decisive Battle of Nashville. Sherman returned to his army and distributed orders for Slocum and Howard's wings to prepare for an all-out assault on Savannah. It was also that day common soldiers remembered well, for the mail finally caught up to them. That delivery brought a message for Sherman. It was from Lieutenant General U.S. Grant. Sherman opened it, read it, and an aide recorded what happened next. The aide watched him, as he put it, make that nervous motion of the left arm which characterized him when anything annoyed him. Out of his mouth, Sherman spat, Won't do it. I won't do anything of the kind. In the communication, Grant made it clear that he wanted Sherman's force on ships and transported to Virginia to help the Army of the Potomac whip Robert E. Lee's army at Petersburg, Virginia. The man who had Savannah in his grip, wanted to continue his campaign into South Carolina. He wanted to crush the cradle of the rebellion. For an hour or more, the redhead fumed and calmed himself enough to focus on the immediate task at hand, Savannah. To his adversary, Hardy, Sherman sent an ultimatum for surrender, and from his opponent came a dignified refusal. Sherman had hoped to avoid a bloody end to his march across Georgia, but it seemed a fight was on. Then, the night of Tuesday, December the 20th, in a heavy fog, Hardy gave his opponent something to savor. Under the cover of a massive bombardment, old reliable began the military evacuation of Savannah, Georgia. Unit after unit crossed the pontoon bridge north into South Carolina, and by dawn of the 21st, Savannah 
was open for federal occupation. Men in blue found that the Confederates destroyed most of its naval vessels, and in fact, an ironclad was still burning. But remarkably, the city itself was intact. 250 heavy guns were taken, and some 31,000 bales of cotton. A few days later, on Christmas Eve, Abraham Lincoln received a wire. It was from Major General William Tecumseh Sherman and read simply, I beg to present you as a Christmas gift, the city of Savannah, with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition and also about 25,000 bales of cotton. Then the conqueror of Savannah got a gift in return. In a message from Grant up at Petersburg, the general-in-chief reversed himself. After a successful march to the sea, there would be a Carolinas campaign. The march he had conceived, led, and made had confounded military convention. His men, isolated and on their own, had marched 275 miles right through the bowels of the southern heartland. In the wake of the march, as one Union soldier put it, the destruction could hardly have been worse if Atlanta had been a volcano in eruption and the molten lava had flowed in a stream 60 miles wide and five times as long. Georgia, for all practical purposes, was knocked out of the war. South Carolina was next. As he prepared for the next campaign, Sherman allowed himself a moment of congratulations when he penned these words to his wife. Like a man who has walked a narrow plank, I look back and wonder if I really did it. Indeed, he had. And even today, except for Atlanta and its metropolitan area, which by its significant physical, cultural, and demographic transformation is no longer a true southern city, there are many in the surrounding areas of Georgia who have not forgotten. And for those whose ancestry stretches back to the mid-19th century, have yet to forgive. After marching 275 miles in 36 days, on Wednesday the 21st of December 1864, William Sherman and his force occupied Savannah. There he rested and resupplied, and there he pushed for approval the next step in his plan to drop the Confederacy to its knees. As he put it in a letter to Major General Henry Halleck in Washington City, the whole army is burning with an insatiable desire to wreak vengeance upon South Carolina. I almost tremble at her fate, but feel that she deserves all that seems in store for her. Next time we gather, we yet again fall into step with Sherman's columns as he launches the Carolina campaign. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.